Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all. I've, I've missed this moment, everything that is happening in this moment. Don't stop. Don't stop. It is so great to be together this morning. For those that worshiped with us last weekend online or here, wasn't that a weekend to remember? It was so powerful. It was so good. So good. Filled my sails. sails. But it was also a bit surreal to reflect on the fact that a year ago, we were actually celebrating Good Friday and Easter in quarantine. And with every week that passes, I have to tell you, it feels like the winter that we've all endured, that's been brutal, is giving way to spring. To spring. Now, I can honestly say with no reservation that I've never been more grateful for spring in the Pacific Northwest. Not merely because I prefer 70 degree, degree weather over ice storms, wildfires, and power outages, but also because springtime brings the promise of new life. And isn't that the essence of what we just celebrated over Easter weekend? A savior who endured the cross and went to hell through the grave to make all things new. To make all things new. And as we return to Luke's gospel today, we're going to see in the weeks ahead that the brutal sufferings that Christ endured during Holy Week were not only things that he endured to redeem us from our sins, but they also exemplify a way of living, a cross-shaped life where we can even rejoice in the midst of bitter hardships because we believe something that the Apostle Paul came to believe and he wrote about in Romans chapter 5, that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And while I imagine today if we took a poll among us, that many of us, if not the vast majority of us here today, we would say, you know what? I could use more hope and more love. And perhaps the courageous among us would admit in church that we need to grow in certain aspects of our character. How many of you honestly would ask God for more endurance in your life? To grow endurance. According to Paul, if scripture is correct, suffering uniquely produces endurance. And apart from endurance, endurance is actually what produces character. And character produces a hope that is fueled by the undying love of God that is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But if you take endurance out of that equation you don't get 
Christ-like character. You don't get Christ-infused hope. So you see, if you ask God to help you grow in these things, in character, in hope, in love, he often answers that prayer by allowing us to endure difficulties and trials and suffering. In fact, listen to this definition of endurance. It's the ability or strength to continue or last, especially despite fatigue, stress, or other adverse conditions. Sound familiar? The whole last year has been one long, painful endurance training session. When will it ever end? How do we keep on persevering? How do we have a quality that allows us to stick with it and persevere and not check out? Can anyone relate to fatigue and stress and need some strength today to dig in with where you're at? By a show of hands, could anyone use that? A little more endurance in their life. Okay, thank you for being honest. In spite of the sunshine and 70-degree weather outside, hallelujah for it. Thankful for it. I know that so many of you right now, right here and online, you're walking through a season of suffering that feels like a winter with no end in sight. Hear this. The same God who raised Jesus Christ up from the dead wants to pour his love into your heart this morning so that you can endure and you can press in with greater hope and joy. And the way that God is going to do that is through his word. So if you would, open to Luke's gospel as we continue our study today in chapter 21 with a word on endurance. We're going to start and continue where we left off in verse 5 of chapter, one, uh, chapter 21 in Luke's gospel. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Christ said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. 
and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. This is God's word. Our passage today ends with this verse we just read that stopped me in my tracks when I read this a few weeks ago. It's so peculiar, such a peculiar promise from Jesus. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, when most of us think of endurance, I don't think that we associate it immediately with gaining life. If anything, we associate endurance with grinding something unpleasant out, which we've certainly all had a lot of practice with this last year. But according to Jesus, there's, there's actually a difference between simply enduring life and an enduring kind of life that actually leads to greater hope, to greater joy, to greater perseverance. Not a rosy, comfortable, easy, you've got this, no problem sort of disposition in life, but one where disciples of Jesus can even flourish while enduring bitter hardships and struggles, persecutions, losses, grief. So as Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem, knowing full well that he's going to endure excruciating torture, crucifixion at the hands of the religious leader, he turns to his disciples and shares three exhortations to help them grow in endurance. In the same kind of endurance that is going to carry him through Holy Week, through the cross, to the resurrection, three exhortations. If you're taking notes today, the exhortations go like this. Very simple. Don't be distracted, don't be deceived, and don't be deterred. First, his first exhortation that Christ impresses upon his disciples is don't be distracted by things that won't ultimately endure. For those that remember, the context of today's passage that we read takes outside of the temple in Jerusalem. And as Jesus' disciples come into the temple and see the temple, they're awestruck by its ornate architecture and beauty and glory. In fact, in Mark 13, verse 1, I think we have that verse there. Mark's account of this story, we read that as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples approached him and said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful 
buildings. Now, if the disciples were on a Zoom call with Jesus, this is the point in the gospel narrative where their video would be off. They are with Jesus, but they are deeply distracted by the wonderful stones and the wonderful architecture. Look again, even in Luke 21, we see in verse 5, the first verse that we read, while some were speaking, some is the disciples, by the way, were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Christ said these words. So although the disciples are present with Jesus as he's making his way to Jerusalem, their attention has been fixed on the temple. And quite honestly, if you or I had been there in that moment, we would have been caught up in its glory and beauty as well. The temple constructed by Herod the Great in Jerusalem was the size of 25 football fields and was covered with precious stones and gold. According to the first century historian Josephus, Herod reportedly used so much gold to cover certain sections of the temple that anyone who gazed at these gold-laced stones would be blinded if the sun was out like it is today in Oregon. So you can imagine the scene as Jesus' disciples are marveling and taking in this awe-inspiring architectural wonder, this seemingly unshakable symbol of God's presence and strength and glory, to then have Jesus turn to them and say soberly, as for all these things, these wonderful stones, all of this gold that you see, The days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon one another that will not be thrown down. Now, to be honest, folks, it's hard for us to comprehend and to emotionally connect with how shocking these words would have been for first century Jews. It would be claiming something like the Twin Towers coming down in New York City before 9-11 happened. How could a monument so massive, something so strong and seemingly permanent, ever fall? And yet we know that the fate that Jesus foretold of the temple's destruction had already taken place by the time that Luke recorded and distributed his gospel. In the year 70 AD, the Roman government had had enough of Jewish insurrections and riots. And so the emperor Nero and a general of his, Titus, led a siege and surrounded Jerusalem. Many, if not most of the Jewish people, they fled into Jerusalem and thousands sought refuge in the temple hoping that the strong walls of the temple, but also the holiness of this place would ensure their safety. But they were wrong. 
thousands of men and women and children, those who depended on the security of these stones that the disciples had marveled at, were killed, were murdered. So as Jesus' disciples were standing with him in the temple, although they're standing in the same place, they see a very, very different scene. The disciples see something glorious, unshakable. And Jesus sees ruins. The ruins of something that won't ultimately endure the suffering and the persecutions to come. So Jesus, in love, he arrests the disciples' attention and our attention as the readers of this gospel by giving us a vision of what's to come. And to be honest, it's pretty bleak, to say the least. The destruction of the temple, wars, rumors of wars, insurrections, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, and diseases, imprisonments, family conflicts. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, you know what, that list sounds a little bit like the year that we just walked through. You're certainly not alone. And many during the last year have actually asked legitimate questions, not jestingly, if we are in the midst of the apocalypse or the end times. So I'm actually deeply grateful as your pastor for the opportunity that this passage affords to to clarify some misconceptions, some unbiblical assumptions about the apocalypse and the end times. Technically, you may not know this, but this passage, this exchange between Jesus and his disciples in Luke chapter 21, theologians refer, this, refer to this passage as an, ap- an apocalyptic passage. That was a tongue twister, an apocalyptic passage dealing with the apocalypse. And now I know that for many of you, that word apocalypse, it, it stirs up a mixed bag of emotions. For some of you, the term may be connected with movies or or fictional Christian books that you've read that speculate how the world will come to an end, who will be left behind, and how Jesus' return fits in. For others of you, this talk pumps you up. You're excited to lean in and understand what the scriptures say about the end of our times and how Jesus' return fits in and holds everything together in hope. And in the weeks and months ahead, you need to know that we are going to be doing more forums on Friday nights. And during one of these forums in the future, we're just going to lean into eschatology, a fancy Christian word meaning the study of end times. We're going to lean in, we're going to open the scriptures as we always do, because we're not a place that is soft on truth. And a lot of those questions are legitimate. For for many other people, I suspect, I know that the notion of an apocalypse is very confusing. It can elicit fears and a lot of questions and confusion. So here's what is incredibly helpful to know 
from this passage. Did you know that the Greek term for apocalypse comes from this Greek term kalupto, which literally means an uncovering? It's an uncovering. So to experience an apocalypse is to experience fresh sight. It's to behold God and the world and ourselves and others and all things through new eyes. This is the essence of what Jesus is inviting his disciples to do, to look beyond the gold and the stones and the glory of the temple and to see something eternal and more glorious than they've ever beheld, namely him. You see, as the disciples were distracted by all the gold and grandeur of the temple, they did not realize they were standing next to the Savior that we worshipped and sang to and exalted on Good Friday and Easter in this place. Israel's Messiah who had come to redeem our broken world from the curse of sin. So in love, Jesus pulls the cover back and reveals the emptiness of the things that they're fixated on. In a very real sense, friends, I believe this last year that we've all endured has been apocalyptic in the truest sense of the word. Because it has been a year where God has pulled the cover back on so many lies and lesser things that we cling to for hope and security and peace. And although it's always painful when Jesus exposes these things within us, he will not stop pursuing us in love until his truth has had its way with us and set us free. Can I get an amen? Amen. Those were a couple soft amens. I know, that's hard. It's hard. It's hard to grow in endurance. But when Jesus pulls the cover back and he says, you're distracted by your newsfeed. You're distracted by it. You're distracted by this podcast. You're distracted by your entertainment. You're distracted by this hope. It's always painful. But what he's doing is he's moving us away from things that don't have enduring hope to himself. Which brings us to the next exhortation that Christ impresses upon his disciples. After saying, don't be distracted by these things that won't endure. Take your eyes off the temple. Focus on me. The next exhortation is don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by false teachers. It's fascinating that as the disciples are understandably shaken and shell-shocked by Jesus' words about the temple's fall, they turn to him and they ask him a very reasonable question, okay? So back to our passage in Luke 21, after him saying, all these stones will fall, they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And look at Christ's 
response. Pay close attention to this. This is, this is fascinating. See that you are not led astray. See that you're not deceived. You're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Over the last year, sadly, there have been many pastors and teachers that have capitalized on the fear of the pandemic to grow their churches or ministries or podcast followings by making bold predictions and prophecies in Jesus' name. Many. If you were a false teacher in the time of Christ, you would need to actually have a platform like a synagogue, or you would have to, to publish your, your teaching by writing it out on scrolls. Anyone with access to Twitter, anyone with access to the internet has capacity to promote false teaching. So it's not a matter of if you encounter false teaching, we're all navigating a culture that's filled with false teachers. And so notice, pay close attention to what Jesus says here when he says, many shall come in my name, in the name of Jesus. In other words, they would presume to represent him. Now, some, according to Jesus, would actually claim to be him, to assume his identity by saying, I am he, I am the Messiah. And he says, be on the lookout for those that assume my identity. But he also tells us to be on the lookout for those that assume to be his prophetic messengers. Those that come in his name and claim to have secret knowledge about the times and signs that need to be deciphered. So Jesus tells us, be on the lookout for those who come in my name, because not every messenger that claims that their teaching represents me is sent by me. So, which begs the question, it's a very, very important question. How can we identify these false teachers who come in Jesus' name and not be led astray? Jesus and the New Testament authors have a lot to say about this, but for the sake of our time together today, there's two primary warning signs to be on the lookout for to help us be on guard against false teachers who lead God's people astray. Jesus and the New Testament authors two warning signs, fruit and focus. Pay attention to their fruit and pay attention to what they focus on. First and foremost, scripture tells us that we can recognize false teachers who come in Jesus' name by their fruit. So if you turn to the left, if you have your Bible, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, and verses 15 to 20, we get a profile of false teachers and look at how Christ warns us to pay attention to to these teachers and what to look for. In verse 15 of Matthew's gospel, he says, beware of false prophets or false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You can recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits twice. Jesus says in this passage, so we won't miss it, you will recognize false teacher, teachers by their fruits. His warning may sound clear and simple, but as we all know, true, trees don't bear fruit overnight. Eventually, however, fruit will be evident over time. So we should always be looking for the fruit of a leader's life the integrity of their relationships, the words they speak and post on social media accounts, and the way they conduct themselves, especially when they're off stage and off the camera. Is the leader's life marked by what scripture calls the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Or is their life marked by pride, anger, impatience, impulsive words, and harsh, unloving behavior that's not becoming of the way of Jesus? First and foremost, Jesus says you'll recognize false teachers by the kind of fruit their life bears, not by how large their church, ministry platform, or podcast following is. So pay attention to their fruit. Second, scripture tells us we can recognize false teachers by their focus. And unlike fruit, which may take a long time to discern, you can actually identify the focus of somebody's teaching or ministry by listening carefully. We are a Jesus place. The focus here is Jesus. It will always be Jesus. Our goal every single Sunday is to exalt the name of Christ, the work of Christ, the glory of Christ. If you come in and on a Sunday, a sermon or a message and a worship service, you don't hear the name of Jesus at least 20 times, tell us. That's an open invitation. Send us an email. You was like, you know, you guys were a little bit light on Jesus today. Tell us. We are committed now and in the past and for all time to be focused on Jesus. Amen? Because all of our hope, the only hope that will endure is the hope that is connected to Jesus Christ. False teachers, on the other hand, focus more on their own ability to decipher and decode apocalyptic signs than they do declaring the person and work of Jesus Christ. I don't say that to be mean-spirited, but to make you attentive that many who bring the focus of their ministry on their special anointing and prophetic insight into the times and current news stories and things like that, instead of exalting the name of Jesus, be careful. Write this down. 
okay? This is key to help you understand biblical prophecy, which is a thing. In the context of the New Testament, the purpose of prophecy is to elevate the kingdom and glory of Jesus Christ in ways that build up the body of Christ to be a faithful witness to the world. That is the purpose of prophecy. In light of Jesus' work, that is the purpose. Not to make speculations on how current events and news stories fit within an end times timetable that must be decoded in order to predict Christ's return. That's not the purpose of biblical prophecy. So if anyone comes to you with confident predictions about when Jesus is returning, they are either a false teacher or they're ignorant of the scriptures or both. Because while scripture gives us signs of the times to be attentive to, to make us alert, to drive us deeper into our engagement in Jesus' mission, to embolden our faith, not even Jesus knew when he would return. In Matthew 24, verse 36, Christ goes as far in Matthew's gospel to tell us no one knows about that day or hour of my return, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, while Jesus and the biblical authors do offer us apocalyptic signs to pay attention to, as Jesus does, in Luke 21, the purpose of these signs isn't actually to help us predict when Christ will return or even when the world as we know it will come to an end. Instead, these signs of the times are actually meant to bring the focus back to following Jesus faithfully, sharing the gospel, and engaging in his mission until he returns. In fact, so you know I'm not making this up, I'm not impressing upon this, this upon the Bible, look at how Jesus connects his prophetic vision of what's to come with the disciples' mission in Luke 21. Look at this. In, in verses 9 to 13, pay attention to this. In, in Luke's gospel, Look at what happens. In verse 9, he says, When you hear wars and tumults, don't be terrified. For these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. For he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes, and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there'll be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they'll lay your hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors. For my name's sake, underline this. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Jesus says, don't be terrified. All of this, all of the difficulties to come, that you'll have to endure door will open doors for fruitful gospel ministry. This will all lead to your opportunity to be my witnesses. Which leads us to Jesus' final exhortation. And all is moving to this. Don't be deterred from your mission. 
Don't be deterred. My friends, over this last year, there have been so many moments where my own fears have welled up and I've wondered, Lord, how in the world are we going to keep on enduring? Where I've been tempted, where my hopes have been tested by fire, I've been tempted to give in to a spirit of despair, we've been tempted to just give up hoping that Jesus can bring something beautiful out of this painful year that we've all endured. And in moments where I'm tempted to throw in the towel, the Lord will bring friends into my life with a word that will remind me why we endure. Why we endure. Last week, that friend that God sent into my life to encourage me to keep on enduring was our friend, Pastor Nopum, in Myanmar. As many of, as you know, Myanmar is going through an unthinkable, challenging time of suffering right now. Uh, in light of the military coup, most people are locked down in their, their districts. Their way of life is being threatened. Um, there's, there's people each day in the streets um, that are being, being murdered. Um, it, is, it is really, really, really difficult what is happening after the military coup in, in Myanmar. It's so much uncertainty. I know Poom sent me an email after Easter, and I want to read it to you. Because it's not just for me, it's for all of us. Dear my fellow servants of Christ, greeting to you in Jesus' name. By God's grace, we celebrated Easter Sunday. We sang the song that he wrote called He Rose. The timing and harmony were terrible because there were some Buddhist converts and newcomers who've never sung Christian songs. <laughs> I love this. I love my friend so much. They sang terribly. This is amazing. But we enjoyed the time as we exalted the risen Lord. I had a good time today in sharing the gospel regarding the death and burial and resurrection and ascension. I have challenged the church to focus on the great commission given to them by the risen Lord. We also had Holy Communion. I hope that you also had a good time celebrating Easter Sunday in a different or better manner. <laughs> what is that? I love it. May the Lord bless you. Your friend, Pastor Nopum. Uh, I have a video here, actually, uh, that was taken on Easter Sunday of that congregation singing that song, He Rose, that I just wanted to show you a few seconds. Poom will not be deterred from Christ's mission. In River West, this moment, I believe that Jesus is going to open up unprecedented doors and opportunities for us to see the gospel 
come to people in a way that we've never witnessed and seen. That's this moment. I believe that if we endure, if we just keep on enduring, don't give up. Thank you to each of you that who have endured with us in this season. Keep your prayers going. But more than anything, don't you give up hope, River Wester, friend. Don't give up hope. The Lord is going to bring something beautiful out of the ashes.